I think that lichen is proof that God approves of abstract impressionalism. Have you ever seen the underside of a box turtle? What is it about illustrating scripture that's so important? He is trying to combat legalism by using a style of art which actually challenges lines. Why art? Really, the question is why live? There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. I'm Anna Mason. And I'm Trinity Klumperens. And today we'll be discussing Makoto Fujimura's The Four Gospel Frontispieces. In a closet. In a closet. But that's not part of the piece. Uh, Anna is part of our, is joining our podcast because she is a uh, art major at Hillsdale College. Um, and she's really good at art. And okay. we, we wanted. That might be going a little far. <laughs> I was, I was trying to do <laughs> We're just trying to hype you up. Okay? <laughs> um, well, we wanted somebody, because we have not done an art piece yet. and We wanted we were, somebody smart. We wanted. We were thinking, how are we going to actually talk about our piece for an hour? We don't really know how to do that. Um, we do know how to stare and grunt at one, but we don't know how to talk about it. So that's why we, we had you come on. Staring and grunting is the most important part, uh, but talking about it is the slightly, highly educated her mm-hmm. part. Yeah. So, okay. We're going to take a whack at it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anna, do you have anything else? Anything else that's important for people to know about you? I will just say that my, my education in art or my, even my decision to pursue art as a career really was based more in a desire to learn how to see things than in a desire to learn how to recreate those things, but they're so closely married uh, that you can't really have one without the other. What kind of art attracts you? I really, well, this actually is a perfect segue into our uh, little discussion that we're going to do about kinds of art um, and what this particular piece is that we're doing. Is it all right if I say what the yeah, piece is that we're it. talking about? Yeah. So we're going to be talking about uh, Mac, uh, Makoto, Fujimura. Makoto Fujimura and yeah. his The Four Gospel Frontispieces. And so these... Oh, there's five, actually. It says the, five, the four Gospels, but there's five... I think there's one, like, summary piece. Summary piece. And then there's one for each Gospel. And then there's one. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and these... Paintings are in the abstract expressionism style, and that essentially means as opposed to something that is representative. So if I'm staring at a water bottle and I paint the water bottle, even if it's impressionist, if I'm still, if it's still a water bottle and you can see that it's a water bottle, then that is representational. But if it's not representing something, then, like, these paintings are colorful, but there's nothing that they're actually attempting to recreate for the viewer. Maybe with the exception of the lily one, because you can Mm kind of tell. 
You can kind of tell that it's a lily. Yeah. But it's still an abstraction of a lily, in a sense. So... So would you say it actually, in some sense, it might even fail if it's really obvious what it is in the case of abstract art? Yes, I would say it it wouldn't fail. It just would be that you're. it's a misnomer. You wouldn't necessarily... You wouldn't call it abstract. You wouldn't call it abstract. Um, you would have to come up with another name for it, which is probably why there's so many names for so many different kinds of art. But yeah, so I am very attracted to abstract impressionist art in that I think that it reflects nature really well and I absolutely love nature and um, micro moments and I think that a lot of abstract impressionist art can kind of go that way but I'm also a huge fan of the artistic tradition of portraiture and still life and these extremely representative um, things that are in art, but yeah, so I'd say fine art, oil painting, definitely my jam. You were earlier, before we started recording, you were talking about lichen and abstract (sighs) impressionism and and God and how those things connect. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Okay, well, I think that lichen is proof that God approves of of abstract impressionism to some extent because when you go out in the woods, I recently found a piece of bar clang on the ground that had some yellow lichen on it, and it's like my prized possession right now. I might eventually get over it, but Mm -hmm. it's so gorgeous, and it's not representing anything. It's this, you know, this isn't Degas ballerinas uh, prancing around. This isn't a, uh, you know, Goliath getting his head chopped off by David. It's right. just a little piece of beauty. And I think that that matters. I think that we can have proof in a lot of nature that just plain beauty with no story or narration does matter to God because he puts it in everywhere that he can is just a little moment of color or shape or line. So, so I, my dad had a German professor and he was complaining to him about the problems, the, his grievances with modern art. He's saying it's always oh, so random. It doesn't make any sense. And his German professor leaned back. He started stroking his beard and he said, have you ever seen the underside of a box turtle? <laughs> exactly. And he said, well, yeah, I have. And he's like, it looks pretty random, doesn't it? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And he's like, oh, so a little bit of randomness is, is okay then, right? So, yeah, there's like, there's that. But I think that what abstract art does is, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a microcosm. It's a, it's a minutia. It's not in the sense of still life or a, a kind of impressionism is a big picture sort of way of looking at the world. Whereas abstract if I, I don't know if this is correct, but like, I mean, abstract art is more focused on, on a very, very specific quality of things, you know, which is something, and, and is, which is something that maybe people don't want to engage with because they want to understand something, but really it is the, the part that you don't understand about something that really intrigues you and really gets your attention. And, um, you know, I think that there's an assumption that we have about art that we have to figure out what it means before we're going to engage with it. Yeah, I would know. say that good 
abstract impressionist art is equivalent to the moments in songs or movies that for some reason you remember or attract you even though they're not part of the plot or they're not part of the mm -hmm. lyrics or the meaning but that pull you in because it makes you feel something or it just it's a sound you like. It's kind of like that. It's, it's a look you like. It doesn't mean that it's meaningless. A lot of times there's a lot of meaning woven in, but I think that what makes it really high quality is that it's valuing the human desire to just enjoy the look of something and not necessarily have it be spelled out. So there's an idea in philosophy called qualia, which is just a fancy way of saying quality. But the reason why it's they categorize it is because for the, a philosopher, it's an irreducible thing. Um, and and, you, and mm -hmm. you have to put it in a different category from something that can be rationally explained. Like, you know, this is kind of like the center thesis of the piece. Whereas, um, you know, this is the, the quality of, you know, this is what the singer's singing about. This is the, the kind of huskiness or something, or a little bit of the edge that they have, mm -hmm. which you can't really put your finger on. One buttock artist. What, what? You didn't see there was a TED Talk, this really good piano player talking about how he's a one buttock artist, that he's, <laughs> he's never on both buttocks at the same time <laughs> because he's putting everything that he has into it and that you can always tell the difference between a one buttock artist and a two buttock artist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that phrase for the rest of my life. Thank you. Um, so one, uh, now that we know a little bit about abstract art and impressionism, here's my question. Why, so he's, a part of the project that he's doing, right, is he's illuminating a manuscript of the King James Bible, and he did that for the 400-year anniversary of the King James Bible, and this was published in, in 2011. Um, why, why abstract art for the Gospels, specifically? Because traditionally, like, when I think of Christian art, most of what I think of is iconography, which is incredibly representational, right? It's never abstract. It's only depictions of real events, real people, because that's, like, the point of it. That's what iconography is. Yeah, there are so, so many an interesting for yeah. iconography. Yeah, so, like, why, why, why abstract art? For the Gospels versus something else. I think that it actually is a similar reason why iconography, because iconography and the rules of iconography actually play back to a desire to not be making graven images, but still to be using imagery as a part of it. So they have, this is how you create this look of a human, of a person, to represent them and be an icon of them, but not to be them. Yeah. So I think this is really just my two cents of, of what I'm making a hypothesis of, of why I, he chose abstract impressionalism. I mean, I think the obvious answer is that's what he does. Yeah. Um, that's what he enjoys. And the, and the art style that he does with the traditional Japanese um, ni... You probably would be better at saying this, but... <laughs> Nihonga and Kachoga bird and flower painting tradition, which is a very, like, 
takes a long time to do it, and mm-hmm. the ink that's used is aged for like a hundred years, and all of these different minerals and everything go into it, which I think will play into some of the illumination themes. Mm-hmm. But I think that another reason why abstract impressionism does work for the Gospels or could work for the Gospels is because it isn't, because it isn't representational, it's not adding information to the Word of God. Mm. And Mm. therefore, it's still a visual way to engage with the Bible, but you know, obviously every art piece where it's, this is a picture of Jesus, this is a picture of David, this is, you have this feeling of being separated from it. In your mind, you go, this is just an imagination of the artist, of this, it didn't really look like that, whatever. So he's able to kind of jump over all of that. What Mm -hmm. did they actually look like? What was the situation? What did they wear? And do something different. It seems like it's also sort of, it's meditative in some way. Like, part of the point of abstract art is that you can just sit and look at it, and you could sit and look at these paintings while you're meditating on or thinking about some part of the Gospels that it's representing. Um, And it's not going to distract you, necessarily. It's not going to take you away. It's just allowing you to look at something while you're meditating on those words, which is actually also kind of part of the point of of iconography. it's just a little bit of a different way of doing that. Does that sound right? Does that? Yeah, but I think. Would, would it be beneficial for me to like describe these pieces badly and then like you explain yes, why? Yes, I think I'm describing them at this point would be a great idea. Okay, so there's the four pieces. First one, Matthew. Matthew, consider the lilies, and it the color is roughly kind of teal turquoise blue very light blue very appealing looking color and it is kind of clear that what you're looking at is a lily um some flower at the center of the page but it really looks like kind of like one color kind of occupies the entire space and then secondly we have mark the water flames um which, of course, just appears to be a blotch of red, but it is really interesting. I mean, like, it's not just red. There's there's a lot of interesting textures going along. Um, and I think it's done in watercolors here. Um, Luke, the prodigal god, prodigal god is taken from uh, Fujimura's pastor, Timothy Keller, um, the book that he wrote. And this one's a little bit more complex. It, it does appear to look like something like um, a farm, um, at the the foreground and the background, uh, but there's the there the use of colors sort of mixes the water, uh, the sky, the blueness of the sky with the plants on the ground. Um, so I guess we're looking at dealing with a lot of just orange and orange and blue here. Um, and then lastly, John in the beginning, which I described as crying inside a Honda Accord on a rainy day, <laughs> which I don't know if that puts the right mental picture in mind. We hope it's not a personal experience. It, <laughs> I own no Honda Accord. It just looked... <laughs> crying with a bloody nose it, in a Honda Accord. It was like, that was the mood I was getting at. But anyway, this one is meant to echo um, 
Well, part of the point of John is that it starts in the beginning, which echoes uh, the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, was the Word was, was God, which is meant by John to actually reference the beginning of Genesis. The top one, which is the fifth piece, which is meant to be the combination of all four pieces, is called Charis Kairos, the tears of Christ. Now, charis, kairos, those are Greek words. Charis means um, grace. Charis means grace. Kairos means time or opportunity. And there's meant to be the parallel between Genesis and John and the phonetic similarity between charis, grace, and kairos, time, I think is probably uh, approximating what he was maybe intending to sort of poetically rhyme those ideas. I and think, and the front and the and the and the centerpiece is sort of is kind of an interesting combination of all four of them kind of brought together. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, there's definitely a mirroring of of color and theme from the Karis Kairos and the rest, but especially a strong mirror between the Karis Kairos and the John in the beginning piece. Um, I think you did a really good job describing um the pieces personally i think that it's very hard to get a feel for the motion um of a lot of pieces over over verbal cues mm -hmm. but i think that it's really important that we do question though abstract impressionalism um one of the most famous rebellions against was when Abbott McNeil Whistler painted Nocturne in Black and Gold, which has a strong resemblance to John um, in the beginning. It's, it's a painting, dark green background, uh, gold flecks falling from the sky, and it's a fairly abstract representation of rockets uh, sputtering out or fireworks sputtering out. Mm -hmm. And this guy hated it so much, and there ended up being a lawsuit about it, actually. And he said, uh, John Ruskin accused Whistler of flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. Oh, wow. And I think that a lot of people to this day, still think that way about abstract exp expressionist painting, um, especially pieces like, uh, man, I can't believe I can't remember the name, but um, who was the guy who did the all the splattery paintings in the 50s? Oh my gosh, I don't remember. Oh, I'm so mad because, anyway... Nope, drawing a blank. <laughs> Come on, art major. I know, art major. <laughs> um, I'm I am nervous. currently Googling splattery paintings in the 50s. <laughs> we'll see. It's called Autumn, Autumn Rhythms. Autumn Rhythms. Anyway. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. How oh, did I go. forget? Um, it seems easy, in a sense. They just pour paint. This guy... Um, uses a sprayer, different stuff, and it's just kind of like you just splash it on. Is that is that intentional enough for the Bible? I feel like there is, you can definitely, there's enough going on here that you feel like there's an intention. Like there's, there's a, 
there's a reasonable interpretation to be yielded from the four gospel frontispieces. For example, I mean, again, like because part of the goal of abstract art is to is to experience the quality of things or the mood that it evokes. And to that end, I think that it succeeds because, I mean, let's look at, like, what the title of the piece is, Consider the Lilies. The colors that we use are obviously very cool, and the sort of mood that it evokes is definitely something that's sort of meant to evoke peace, and blue is traditionally the color of peace. Um, so that works for Matthew. Mm-hmm. Mark... Mark, I, I think this one makes a lot of sense to me uh, because, first of all, Mark, the style of the Gospel of Mark is very terse. It's very focused on action. Mm-hmm. And it is also famous for being the Gospel um, that celebrated Jesus casting out the Legion of Demons. And so, okay, presenting Jesus as the King of Peace in, the, in Matthew, presenting Jesus as a warrior in the water flames, you know, um, and that bringing in the color red for representing that, I think that's appropriate. Luke, the prodigal God, I mean, we can kind of infer that this is a field that we're looking at, um, and there's more detail in it. Luke is, being a doctor, a Greek doctor, was much more detailed in his Gospels. Um, And then John in the beginning, that's way out there, I don't even know. It looks really galactic. It does look a little galactic, yeah. And there's a little, little bit of sparks of yellow in there. Um, so that that could be stars. It looks a little like Let There Be Light, and then boom, this painting. Yep, and your Let There Be Light, boom, and then there's a mixture, and there's a mixture of blue and red kind of coming together. So there's like the union of God's natures mm-hmm. as being one thing. So right. I don't and know, I maybe I'm like just, <laughs> I feel like whenever I talk about art, I'm like just making things up, you know? Like, it, it's true. Well, there there is a certain aspect to that, right? Like, one of the reasons why I accepted John in the beginning, the first time I saw it, as being um, speaking of creation and also Christ's presence at creation is because there's a lot of motion in it. You can see the gold flecks, they're falling down. You can see the green, you can see that coming down. And the blue and green have a converging motion. Mm -hmm. as you look at it and that I think for most of us when we imagine a creation scene we imagine things moving coming down going up converging and dancing and there is that feeling in this in this piece and so you can kind of imagine life growing out of Christ's word by looking at it before before we we talk more about the art pieces specifically in describing them. I just want to take a moment maybe to talk about this more in the abstract. A lot of our listeners, not all of them, but a lot of them are students who do Mars Hill speeches and maybe not sure how, what's the best way to describe art in a speech because it's difficult and we've been talking about how it's difficult. Um, it's one thing to give a summary of a story or of a song, but to describe art to judges that you're talking to is kind of difficult. Uh, Anna, do you have thoughts about how to do that? How do you how do you describe an art piece in a way that would bring it alive to someone who maybe doesn't hasn't seen it or doesn't know what it is? There are ways. Um, generally, it's easier with representational art because people have uh, anchors for objects even right. if it isn't a one for one um, it can be a little bit easier to describe 
an image if there are things in it that people have seen before. With abstract impressionist art, it can be a little bit more difficult unless it's really simple, like um, the Lily one is fairly simple to describe. There isn't a lot there that you need to go necessarily into depth about, but it's pretty useful to know um, the seven elements of form are words that we use in art to verbally communicate what a piece of art looks like or describe it. And there's actually more than one benefit to learning how to describe a piece of artwork because as you're sitting down and trying to describe it and trying to write out every detail, every motion as if somebody was blind, you suddenly start to see so much more than you did when you first looked at it. So it's a good um, exercise. So the elements are line, color, value, shape, form, space, and texture. And I'm sure that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, <laughs> but um, line basically is very straightforward. It's anything that isn't a shape. So the edges of things oftentimes are lines. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it can just be a line. Like in the John one, there are four, or I think it says, I think, I saw three green lines going down from top to the bottom. Now you could describe those as, as a shape um, because they have fullness, but in comparison to the other forms, they have a linear quality. So you could call those a line. In the uh, Luke one, there are definitely some linear qualities. There is a very distinct line that you can follow down the center of um, the painting. There's one side and then the other, and there's also line usage in there. So you can use that terminology of line. Uh, you can also use color. So it's going to be, I think with these paintings, absolutely of the most importance to feel like you have a good handle on what the colors are used for each painting and how they might reflect each other. Value has to do with darkness or lightness. So white versus black, dark gray, light gray. So it would be a high value if it's light or a low value if it's dark. Shape is any form that has height and depth, you know, two, two dimensional shapes. Form has to do with depth. So I feel like there's not a lot of that here. There isn't a lot, but there is a little bit of depth in the Luke. What's the name of that one again? Par Prodigal God. Prodigal God. You can see depth or form in some ways. And also in Matthew, consider the lilies. There is form because you can see the parts of the lily kind of there in the painting. It isn't 100% two-dimensional. And space would be similar. So the, the consider the lilies doesn't have very much space. It's blue, it's small, it's focused, but prodigal God has a lot of space. It's deep, you can see into mm. the space. And texture, obviously, pretty straightforward. Does the color have details? Are there patterns? Are there little specks and flecks and mm -hmm. things? You know, you can use whatever words come to your mind to describe the textures, um, and that can bring a lot into your description. That's pretty much what I have. That was incredible. <laughs>
I've never had any idea how to describe art. <laughs> and that's that's fantastic vocabulary to be able to describe it. Oh, so I forgot one. It wasn't on that list, but I but it. I consider it very important, which is rhythm. Okay. And this oh. one's this one's a little bit like what does that mean in a painting? But you kind of know it when you see it. You're like, oh, like it like moves like this and it and it has these reflections. You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it's not perfect language, but yeah, there, there there's my motion. gift to you. Well, rhythm, is, it, is it sort of like the shapes repeat themselves? It can be, but it can also shape, be... Shape, shape, shape. Other shape! <gasps> shape again! <laughs> <laughs> well, any kind of line or form or shape or texture which repeats itself could be a rhythm, could yes. it? Yes, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Much better art describer <laughs> than me. <laughs> You're a natural. Raymond is going to now go get his master's in art. Uh, I feel like I was a calling, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's talk now a little bit about who the artist is and what he's had to say about this art because he has had a lot to say about his art and about these art pieces specifically. Um, I want to start by uh, giving you a quote that he, from him, from the artist. Um, he said, We today have a language to celebrate waywardness, but we do not have a cultural language to bring people back home. Mm. And he was saying that in relation to these pieces, these art pieces specifically, um, and actually in the description on his website of um, the, the prodigal god one, I think, he references that quote. He says, um, in the art world and culture in which we celebrate the wayward, but not having the language to bring the lost, myself included at times, back home, these series of works probe deeply into the tension that exists within my heart to love deeply in spite of the legalism and the waywardness that prevails in the wider culture. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it means, why he thinks that this maybe has something to do with having the language to bring people back home and also just who this artist is and what he's trying to do. Um, Raymond, what do you have to say about that? Well, it's interesting that he is in some way trying to combat legalism by using a style of art which, by definition, actually challenges lines or the use of lines. And he's described as, first an artist in the abstract expressionism, but also Nihonga, and he is actually an American-born Japanese artist. Um, and so what I think is he actually takes the fusion of these two kinds of styles of art to a much farther degree. And there's a kind of idea in Asian art which is very interested in trying to to express the idea that the landscape that you are trying to paint is not actually contained within the borders of the painting. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, 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 they take a couple, like, they, they have a giant canvas and then they paint a couple lines in the, in the corner, very small, that signify a tree and then some, <laughs> some lichen up here, and that shows that it's a... A, a lip on a cliff and that makes the cliff look really big but you don't actually draw the cliff and then you draw like a tiny little person because a tiny little 
people should be small uh, because they're part of the environment. Mm. And I went to, when I was in Japan with my sister, we went to a Japanese museum called Team Lab Borderless where they really took this to the next level. And it was very Japanese in the sense that they were very interested in making kinds of art that didn't have a border or didn't mm. have a canvas because it was a museum that you were in the dark and everything was animated like light displays mm. and flowers um, all around you. And you were you were totally immersed in this kind of uh, landscape of uh, lights. And it, I mean, it achieved the, the aim of being borderless. And so that works well into abstract, abstract art. Um, but I think that, again, maybe that's the tension that he's talking about here, because on the one hand, one of the things that he's trying to do is to be free of legal, uh, free of legal, legalism. But on the, uh, by the same uh, vein, he's looking for a language to come back home. Yeah. At the same time, language that is the opposite of wayward. So it's it's not necessarily about kind of like I don't know, like there, like he doesn't have any kind of restraint on his art or that it's total recklessness, um, or that it's totally random. But he's trying to use these styles, which are very free and very unrestrained, in a way to articulate the language of coming back home and to give it a destination. Do you think he's succeeding in that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't... I think I, he probably is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I again. I'm I'm not an art major, so it's like I'm out of my league. I'm I'm afraid to say it. But I, <laughs> you know, something I feel like I'm not. I don't have the authority. Something that I think is super important when it comes to art of any kind is attention, and uh, when you take time to do art, and part of his artist philosophy is what he calls slow art, and. That means taking time to, to make the piece of art, to not necessarily rush to make content or to make content for the sake of making content, to slow down your life, to slow down your process. And that in itself is lending honor to the subject matter. So in his decision to use these art forms that take a long time to do, that it's it's 10 layers, a hundred layers of paint of these different minerals and everything in these techniques that he uses isn't just, this is the technique that I want to use, but it's also, I'm going to take time and attention on these thoughts and this subject matter of the Bible as an inspiration for art. And therefore I personally in the, in this moment am giving attention and value to the themes by by taking time which actually has always been true of illumination and Sophie you have some stuff to say about illumination as an art form right I do first I'm curious whether like what does what does Fujimura say about about this art each of his pieces yeah well does he does he say anything besides the idea of coming back home that quote that I was talking about? Or is he sort of silent about <laughs> the pieces? He is not silent about the pieces. He has 
a little something to say about each of them. And he's also quite a prolific writer. So I might touch on a couple of his essays and the things that he has to say about why he's chosen to do art in the way that he has. He says that the paintings uh, that in Consider the Lilies, the painting depicts Easter lilies with triumvirate flowers opening up, but with the suggestion that even these common lilies are transformed into a post-resurrection generative reality. And... You can see that there are several lilies opening in this case. That's really interesting that he calls it a generative reality because um, it seems that what it's one of the things that he's trying to do with style is to fuse traditional art styles with new styles. And in some sense, it's like, you know, the truth is unchanging. The Gospels are unchanging. And yet that particular language it's a generative reality which means that you know it's not dead and it's not static and so those those two words like it's a it's a good it's a good phrase i like it well generative reality implies that it's a reality that leads to creation which is just interesting because he's an artist who's inspired by the gospels to create and i think that kind of flows into what he has to say about Mark Water Flames series depicts the way in which flames not only consumes but ultimately sanctify. These works recall the visual language of the apocalyptic moody paintings of the American artist Mark Rothko, who you guys should definitely look at his paintings because they are very good. Uh, using Japanese vermilion gold platinum powders conchial made from India's dye. The work moves our gaze upward even as we stand in the ever-expanding ground zero conditions of the world. This one, this particular painting, I think sparks my curiosity the most out of all of them because red obviously is a very emotional color. Out of all the other paintings, he has a lot of visual elements that might be interesting, but in Water Flames... It's just this red and a few moments of yellow or gold throughout, but it still really pulls you in. And I find it interesting that he named it Water Flames because to me it almost looks more like a pool of blood that you could just like jump into. That's such a disturbing image. <laughs> Maybe I have a disturbing brain. It does look a little bit wet and fiery at the same time, so... And, Water flames, there you go. And it is interesting that w fire in the Bible has been used both to uh, symbolize lust in the negative sense, but has also, in the same vein, been used to symbolize purification. There's a kind of a dual symbolism to fire. And I think we just have to ask our question, what is the power that color has over us? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us want to say, well, none, it's, it's just color. Mm -hmm. But science really has shown that color can change the way that you feel about a place extremely effectively. Actually, Mark Rothko created a large painting for a very popular restaurant. And he went to this restaurant and he really didn't like how rude everyone was, how uppity and everything. And so when he was commissioned to create these paintings, he made these large, dramatic, dark purple columns on, I think, a 
white background, mm. but it was, it just had this very large and overbearing feeling and the restaurant ended up having to take them down because people came to the restaurant so much less mm. and Rothko had specifically chosen those colors and that composition in order to make the people who were eating there uncomfortable and just to weed out the uppity people I think he just I think he just wanted to like get them I don't know yeah. he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't like them <laughs> But looking at this red field, does it have an impact on you? Could it potentially influence the way you think? I don't know. It is It is weirdly, like, pleasant to look at. I don't know. Um, I guess because it isn't just red, and it's an interesting combination. I don't know. I feel like if it were on my wall, I would be angry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That might not be true, but if it were really big up on my wall, I feel like I would be mad. And then I feel like if the lily painting were up on my wall, I would feel more peaceful. Would it ultimately sanctify you, though, if you had the red one on your wall? That's what that's what he's claiming. I want to say no, but... Consume, but ultimately <laughs> sanctify? Uh, let's hope so. <laughs> well, there's the, you know... The, I'll make the you angry Karis, until you're peaceful. There's the Karis, the Grace, and the Kairos. Kairos! Which is Opportunity! <laughs> Which is very immediate. It will push you out of the house into situations because you don't like being around it. Let's talk about illuminated manuscripts. Yeah, let's talk about illuminated manuscripts. Okay, so this is maybe in some ways out of order because this is not so much in the details of the painting but more in what, what is the point of an illuminated manuscript or how do we think about illuminated manuscripts when we zoom out to a, to a bird's eye view. Um, but illuminated manuscripts are exactly what they sound like. They're manuscripts mostly of the Bible. Um, they're produced generally, uh, they were produced in Western Europe uh, between around 500 to 1600 AD. Um, they're called that because they have gold and silver leaf that are illuminating the text. Um, but they also are basically just illustrated versions of the Bible. and. I think it's interesting that illuminated manuscripts almost entirely died out. People just stopped making them after the printing press because with the printing press you could produce lots of things really quickly, but you couldn't, you didn't have a color copy or you couldn't just copy illustrations. So there was no reason to make the same kinds of illuminated manuscripts. And I think it's worthwhile to think about just how long it took to make an illuminated manuscript and how much work it would have taken because now printing a book you know, takes five seconds, not five, literally five seconds, but it's really, really quick. And you can mass produce as many books as you want. But for a handmade illuminated manuscript, you know, you have a page, just one page, and you make your, your lines, uh, ruled lines for writing the words down. Someone writes down the words, someone else proofreads, someone else inks those in, someone else then goes and puts in the, the gold and the silver leaf and the illustrations on that page. And that's just one page. Um, and they could take, you know, six months or longer to make a, a manuscript. So it's and a that's kind just of, one book. So it's a kind of slow art, is what you're saying. So it's a kind of slow art. Um, and it's just one. You make this one precious thing that takes so much time to make. Um... And I think it's it's hard for us Here's to even... Oh, that's Siri. <laughs> I think it was telling me things about illuminated manuscripts. And most illuminated manuscripts were made on vellum, which is goat skin. 
Yeah, which I think is interesting and kind of symbolic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so thinking about how long it takes to make an illuminated manuscript, and, you know, imagine someone doing that in the modern day, making just a handmade illuminated manuscript where there's exactly one and you can't just copy it. Um, thinking about that, you know, may sound a little bit strange to us, but it actually shouldn't because we're used to living in a world where the production of art is possible because our needs are taken care of, right? We're not mm. worried about our own survival. We're right. not worried that someone's going to break into our house and kill us. Um, we're not concerned that we won't, uh, that the harvest is not going to give us enough food to eat. Um, we don't have to be so afraid for our, for our lives. But the life expectancy at the time that these illuminated manuscripts are being created is so short. It's so difficult to survive. And yet people are taking the time that it takes to make these beautiful illustrated versions of scripture. Um, and that's what brings us to the book of Kells because uh, the book of Kells is probably the most famous um, illuminated manuscript. And it probably, this is what scholars think, they're not totally sure, but this is the normal theory. Uh, most people say that uh, it was produced by monks of St. Columba's Order, which is in Iona, Scotland, and that probably it was started in Iona and then it was brought to Kells and finished in Kells, and it had to be brought to Kells in order to keep it safe from the Viking raiders who struck Iona in 795. So this book literally probably was created and produced in when people are fearing for their lives that someone's going to come and actually kill them and destroy their order. And yet they're still creating beautiful art to illuminate and illustrate scripture. So my question is, what is it about adding art to scripture or illustrating scripture that's so important that people in the Middle Ages were literally willing to give their lives for it, that they were willing to spend time meticulously illustrating scripture when they had things to do that were more important for their own survival. What's so important about that? Why are we still doing it? Well, I think that we aren't really still doing it, which is part of Fujimura's sort of cry of we need to take the time to take inspiration from the Bible because our counterparts as artists who are not Christians are taking their inspiration for art from almost anything but something that might bestow the gift of hope or grace or any of the, of, of the virtues mm -hmm. that the Bible can give. So I think... From Fujimura's perspective, it isn't just about giving value and honor to God and the Bible and his word, but also as a response um, in the art world. And that's something I did want to mention. Art to artists is so different than art to non-artists. The art world, as in most subcultures, 
you know, there's there's inside jokes. There's the, the tiniest little things matter. Everyone's watching. Mm-hmm. And I think that Fujimura is standing and taking the stand. Okay, I'm going to be a Christian artist. What does that mean? Yeah. Can you be a Christian artist? Can you can you draw inspiration from the word of God without being a fuddy-duddy? You know, yeah. like people are watching him and he knows that people are watching him because it's unusual. So I don't know. I think that it's a good idea. I think what he's doing is a good idea to to not only say, well, beauty is of God, so I'm going to make something beautiful and give glory to God through that for for him as an audience, but to also say in front of the world, I'm taking inspiration, illustrating, illuminating, and valuing the word of God as an artistic inspiration. I think also part of what Sophie's question is, is the desperate circumstances in which these monks were creating things that were took ex- were extremely time-consuming and extremely beautiful. And I think part of that also is, even though it seems so different from our time, it's not so different in the sense that um, the problem that we are facing is a time constraint. And this is the same battle that... Fujimura is combating is this kind of crunch time crunch. Mm-hmm. We don't have time. And so you, you're drawing a contrast, but in some sense there isn't a contrast in, sen- in the sense that, I mean, there's different reasons why we have this problem with time, um, but we still have the problem with time. And our problem is we don't feel like we have time, mm-hmm. right? And that is exactly what the monks were not worrying about. They were considering the lilies of the field, even though that they didn't have time. And they mm-hmm. were spending a lot mm-hmm. of time making those things. Yeah. And maybe that's part of Fujimura's message is, you know, that's an interesting, the use of the word kairos, right? Time as being opportunity, right? That And this opportunity is happening within the context of slow art. And what he's introducing is, I think, a fundamentally Christian way of life. Uh, and And the Christian way of life is, I mean... It's not just a belief, it's an entire way of engaging with creation itself. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a call to uh, reject the faster way of doing things, even though we have the luxury of doing things the faster way. Um, so what I was bringing up earlier, the movie, The Secret of Kells. Have you seen this movie? Yeah. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. So that movie, it came out in 2009, and it's done in the style of an illuminated manuscript. And the plot of it, when they're inside the abbey, um, everything is in two dimensionals because it represents safety, because that is this the illuminated manuscript. The Vikings' invasion and the constant uh, threat of the Vikings, the Vikings bring perspective into the shot. So perspective represents danger. Um, but there's so many interesting things about that. First, that you're using an archaic art form mm-hmm. as an illuminated manuscript. But second, that you're using two-dimensional hand-drawn animation in 2009 when that's just fallen out of style. I mean, that's a deliberate choice at yeah. that point because clearly doing CGI for animation would be more effective um, and less time-consuming. Like, But, you know, this is the long way. This is taking the long way home. Um, and so that's, that's and so I think that's a really that's a great example of of slow art, 
and a great example of generative reality because you're taking, um, you're animating the manuscript. Yeah, you know, which I think is beautiful. And in in uh, Fujimura's essay, "Why Art, Why Write," he's speaking of some bluebells blooming um, in his hometown. And he asks, why should we write? When the world is shut down, fear of war is realized, our children are sick from long COVID. Why should we write when our marriage is falling apart and we are hated for the colors of our skin? What can we invoke at this gathering? A gathering of hope words. He had spoken about hope earlier in the essay. What if, to some, the beauty of the Virginia bluebells even seemed cruel, as T.S. Eliot found lilacs traumatized by war and mired in his personal darkness? He wrote, April is the cruelest month, and in the wasteland, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Even beauty coming out in their regular season rhythm can seem cruel when our hearts are still frozen, unable to feel not even to grieve the lost or lament for our nation or mourn for an unjust land. But he goes on to say that why art is really the question is why live? And as a Christian, why faith? And it's all about responding to these moments of crisis with something that is deeper and valuing the lily, the moment, the color over the death and the darkness of our time. Just yeah. the same way that the monks did. Do you have anything to say, Trin? <laughs> Trin's been in the corner this entire time, not saying anything, I just looking at the paintings. I literally have been staring at the Kairos. Actually, no, I have some final thoughts. Okay. Because I have been staring at the Kairos Kairos for the past 30 minutes, and I have had what I think I can only consider to be a revelation. I, okay, you probably already recognize this, but each of the four paintings are represented in this, in the Kairos Kairos, in the Tears of yeah. Christ. You have the blue which you find in the Prodigal God. You have the tan which you find in the Prodigal God. And both of those, the blue is supposed to represent the reckless love of the Father, and the tan is supposed to represent the legalism, Right? And then you have the, the dark black canvas, you have the speckles of red, you have the green, and that's in the beginning, right? And then you have that teal streak at the bottom, which is consider the lilies. And I think that the amazing thing about this is that it's supposed to represent God's tears over the present darkness, and, and the darkness is represented by that black canvas in the background and then you have in order first you have the legalism the streak of legalism which is covered by the reckless love of the father by that blue streak right there and then you have below it the streak of consider the lilies so it's this idea that in the beginning was the word and that's the foundation and then you have legalism you have rules you have that that tan streak right there but what's covered by that, the two colors that cover that, are the reckless love of the Father and considering the lilies of the field. And I think that I've never seen something more beautiful than that. 
Wow. Trinity just That's like amazing. Two minutes, the whole podcast didn't need Comes to happen. In like a just <laughs> ball. We, we spent like an hour just trying to crack what this is about. Trinity's over here just sitting. Then she sits and she looks at the painting. I've been inspired by what you've said while looking at this painting for 30 minutes. Maybe longer, actually. I don't even know. I haven't been looking at the time. Wow. You sit and you look at the paintings. Yeah. Have you guys seen Mr. Bean? <laughs> you know, in Mr. Bean where he's like, okay, and I sit and I look at the paintings. <laughs> we're going to keep talking about the paintings, but we're going to leave They can know about here. Mr. Bean. It's not a secret. And I really know that you've all uh, grown in your appreciation of abstract impressionist painting because it can indeed be glorious. So true. Thanks so much for being here, Anna. Thank thanks, you, Anna. Thanks, Trinity. Yes, I guess yes. thank you, Raymond. Yes, thank you. I Sophie. guess. I guess. Thanks, Raymond. <laughs> You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcasts wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Docapel and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Billy Joel's 1977 hit song, Vienna. Until then, friends, consider the lilies. I know you can see something inside the one part of me.